Good evening, good evening. Welcome to Politics Wednesday, Sowetan Live and uh, The Exchange. My name is Sam Kokeli. Our guest, Paolo Jordan from Cape Town, Mac Maharaj uh, from the great city of uh, Tequini, sitting across uh, from me. Uncle Mac, welcome. Thank you very much. I look forward to engaging about the book that Comrade Paolo and I have written in the hope that the facts that we have put eliminates what happened and how we reached the negotiations. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting book. And, uh, how long did it take you to, to pull it together? We had been researching a, a different matter for quite a while, uh, but uh, that uh, project was not going anywhere. And in the process, just before the lockdown, we talked about what we would do with this mass of information that we have. And we thought that here's a chunk of information relating to a particular phase, 1984 to 1990. And we thought that when you look around the world, uh, the way in which wars and conflicts reach a negotiated resolution uh, is focused really on what happens at the table. But the real issue is how do people who have been at war agree to sit at the table? And what are the forces that make them come there? So we realized that this is a very complex set of events that happens that made it happen. And therefore we thought that it in fact is more important to know that period in order to understand the present. So that's what led us to write this book. And basically we wrote it during the period of the lockdown. Okay, well, thank you. I remember at the time of the ANC centenary celebrations, almost a decade ago, there was this thought that this, uh, the book uh, was coming. And I also remember at some stage ch ch chatting to you about it. And congratulations. Uh, it's quite a thing to, uh, to pull uh, together. Uh, imagine it's an important uh, book, uh, not only for its uh, content, but the authors are people who have uh, original uh, understanding uh, of uh, what uh, happened. So congratulations uh, on that. Let's talk about the book uh, a bit more about the, the located its history and why this particular period uh, that uh, you chose and uh, the, the importance of uh, those conversations leading to the negotiation? I think the problem in South Africa is not so much. Many people say that the younger generation don't know where we come from. And they seem to say it in a form that blames the younger generation. I think Comrade Palo and I share the view that is not their fault. We haven't told the story in a way in which it makes sense to them. We haven't put the facts on the table from all angles so that they can see what was happening. And if they ever located themselves as if they were living at that time and were in that situation, how would they act? So once we do that, the story becomes different. And what, uh, what made it important for us is that from the time the Nets came into power in 1948, they were adamant that they would never sit down and talk to the African National Congress. No matter how many times we wrote to them and said, we're launching the defiance campaign, there are six laws, if you agree to repeal it, we will find a way forward. They said, threw it into the waste bin. 
We invited them to 1955 Congress of the People. They wouldn't come. When we called the all-in conference and Madiba made the call in Peter Marisburg in 1960 to say, let's have a national convention and said to the regime, let's sit down. They wouldn't entertain it. Now, as the war goes on, it becomes more and more bitter. And in South Africa, our war was really dirty. Mm. So dirty that it is unbelievable. The regime with the authority of the head of state engaged in developing chemical and biological weapons designed to kill freedom fighters. They went so far as to inject captured soldiers, combatants of SWAPO, injected them to sedate them, put them on a plane and flew them over the Atlantic Ocean and threw them overboard. They went so far as to poison Sipon Timkulu in East London with thallium in detention and release him and his hair was falling out. And when the experts said he'd been poisoned and he tried to sue the police, he disappeared. But they, he disappeared in such a way that nobody worried where it was. And when the inquiries were made, the police said that, no, we found his car at the border of Lesotho, asked the ANC, he's gone to the ANC. Hmm. It's only years later at the Trans Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it came out that they had captured him, they had tortured him with Topsy brutally, and then killed them and then burnt their bodies overnight, fueling it with more wood throughout the night and taking the charred remains and throwing it into the river. So when you look at those things, this war was getting so dirty. The idea that the, the, the opposing forces would sit at the table was becoming dimmer and dimmer. If you look at the newspapers and commentators of mid-1980, they all believed that South Africa was heading for Abus. Somehow or the other, we got to the table. And this story is, how did we get to the table? What forces were at play that compelled the apartheid rulers to say, yeah, we have to get to the table. Let's agree to talk. Mm. Okay. So in 2021, we have a new South Africa now, and it's even a new South Africa from the new South Africa we had in 1994. It's totally different uh, landscape. Uh, the history we're talking about, why is it so important to record that history when there is a new history about the ANC's uh, account uh, in, in power, time in power. Why does it, that phase come out now and how does it help us? Well, firstly, it helps us because the story so far of what happened is based mainly on memoirs. It does not deal with the facts and tells you where you can find the facts. And memory, as we know, is a very important source of information, but it can be very fallacious and its falseness, it can be very persistent. I've known that in my own experience when I have believed certain things that never happened, but I can give you a ball-by-ball -ball account that it happened. <laughs> how, does that, how does that come about? <laughs> how does that come about? I tell the story that in retirement, one day, Comrade Mandela, Katrada, and I happened to be sitting at Madiba's home. And as usual, we were nostalgic talking about the past. And one of the pasts that always appeared was prison, which we shared together. And I was there for 12 years with them. And Madiba began to recount a particular incident. Yeah. And halfway through, Katrada interrupted him and said, no, it didn't happen that way. It happened a different way. And he recounted it and I interrupted him. And I said, no, 
It happened a different way. We argued for two hours. At the end, I being the young one, being the rude one, said, wait a minute, guys, the event happened. But each version is different, and it is different because each of us puts oneself at the center of the action. We laughed about it, and we agreed to disagree about what happened, but we agreed that it did happen. And that's how persistent memory is in its falsity. Yeah. But the issue is more serious than that. The past is always what shapes the present. What happened and how it happened has shaped how South Africa moved into a democracy. It has helped shape the content of our constitutional democracy. And in the same way, as we look at that past to try and understand the present, what we do today, all of us, not just one party, is going to be shaped the future in which our children will be living. And that puts an enormous responsibility of how we meet the challenges of today. The knowledge that the past shapes the present tells us that the present, what we do, will shape the future. So when we debate, the most important thing that comes out of this book is let's get the facts on the table, let's agree what are the relevant facts, then we can disagree about the, how we analyze and what conclusions we come to. But then at least, Sam, we'll be in a conversation. Not the way it is happening at the moment where we are talking past each other and there is no real conversation. And the history of our struggle shows real conversation has been the basis of success. Let's expand on that, Uncle uh, Mike. Conversation is the basis of our success. Somebody else would look at our history in a different way and even agree with you, but they might end up with the conclusion that the talks, more than, say, uh, the arms struggle uh, or the mobilization domestically or globally, uh, the role of the people like yourselves who were on Robin Island and others, is it possible that they could legitimately reach that conclusion uh, that the talks uh, had the greatest uh, impact uh, in leading to the end of MP rule? I think, that the, I think that there is room for different conclusions. But the important thing is let us share the facts. And when you share the facts, what you find in this book is we show how the different elements of the struggle, the mass work in the country, culminating in the UDF and the formation of COSATU, leading then under a state of emergency to the mass democratic movement, involving the churches was a critical element in bringing about the talks, making the apartheid regime come to the table because it could see it will not succeed in now in keeping the lid on the mass upsurge. But in the same way, there is an intimate relationship between what was happening at the armed level in stimulating the mass struggle and how the mass struggle was stimulating the armed struggle. But as important, Sam, is how it was stimulating the international condemnation of apartheid and the isolation of South Africa. It is when the eminent persons group was shot down by P.W. Botha, when P.W. Botha made the Rubicon speech here in Durban 
after they had built up expectations throughout the world that there was a most significant statement to be made by him of change, that the United States passed the Comprehensive Sanctions Act against South Africa in the face of the President Reagan's veto. So this relationship has to be seen, but it also has to be seen in the context of what was happening in the community of the privileged, the wise. What was happening there also contributed to the shaping. So what you will see in this book is the facts, where you can find verification of the facts. And we then say to you, now this is how we've put together that, which shows that the talks move from a position where the idea of negotiations when first raised in 85 was thought as a wild thing, impossible. Later on, as the events developed, it became possible, but not yet probable. By 1987-88, events had shaped in such a way that it became probable. By 1989, it became inevitable. And what was the task of the democratic forces? They all came together and at a conference for democratic South Africa held in 1989, December, where more than 400 organizations converged at, at the venue in Wits. They discussed the way forward in the context of the Harare Declaration and supported the idea that the time for negotiations had arrived. It didn't happen in the air. It didn't become important in its own right. Events made it happen and events made it a critical process to bring about that change. And as you will know, young as you are, I believe you lived through the period of 1990 to 94. It was no easy period. It was one of the most difficult periods of negotiation. It went back and forwards, but in the end, it produced a democracy in which the fundamental rights of each of us as individuals is reaffirmed. Okay. That is why we are able to sit and you can criticize me today. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks. It's uh, uh, interesting, Ankimet. We're trying to get uh, Uncle Palo on the line. He's listening. Uh, technology is uh, delaying us, but we will get him on. And before we do, I'm trying to get the editor of the sort and uh, Mabisa Makunga, also my colleague, political analyst, uh, Makala Satalafile, uh, to make uh, inputs. Uh, around this. And there's a question that comes up as well, is to, uh, around February the 2nd, 1990, how much did the ANC know about its own unbanning coming out of the uh, negotiations? Uh, maybe you could take us through that, Uncle Mick, whilst we're trying to get the colleagues in the line. What the book sets out is that the talks that were pushed by Mandela in prison and which led him to have 15 meetings with Minister Kobe Kutsia, the Minister of Justice and Prisons, and the talks that were held with a team of four people led by the head of the National Intelligence, Dr. Barnard, which were 40, minimum of 48 meetings in that period from 1987 to 1990. In those talks, the central issue was that Mandela was saying, the way forward for the country is you have to talk to the ANC. And the ANC that he's mentioned talking about is the ANC led by Oliver Tambo with its head office in Lusaka. 
This was a repeated a, a battle that was not resolved even in 1989, when F.W. de Klerk became the president. But by that time, the idea that a negotiated way forward was inevitable had grown, even in the thinking of the apartheid regime, and we produce evidence to show that. However, we also showed that the National Party in moving there was not yet clear how it would find a way to preserve white power and white privilege. It sought to do so under group rights, and we were rejecting it firmly. The National Party then sought to find collaborators, if possible, within the ANC. It even put up the idea that Madiba could belong to the National Statutory Council and as an advisory body <coughs> to the President of South Africa. And we turned it down, and he turned it down flatly. So that was the nature of the discussion. It's time to talk. The apartheid regime did not commit itself to that, but it already, its arguments why it should not do so had weakened, and events had pushed it to a different position. The idea that the ANC would be unbanned was now inevitable by the time Walter Sisulu and company were released in October 1989. Everybody believed that Mandela would be released, and everybody now believes that one way or the other, the regime would have to talk to the ANC. The question was, when would they talk and who and under what terms? President Declerc of the apartheid system in February thought he would take us by surprise and unban not just the ANC and the PAC, but all banned organizations, including Mkonto Wesiswa. Secondly, he promised to release all political prisoners. Thirdly, he promised to open the doors to talks. But we will see that the events later on showed that talks only began in December 1991 between all the parties. So getting that to the table was a huge problem. How much surprise did they take us? There is enough evidence that the leadership of the ANC had anticipated that such a move was coming. How broad ranging it was is not clear. But the evidence shows that the moment Declerc made his speech on February 2, there was a delegation of the ANC meeting Oliver Tambo in Stockholm. And straight away from Stockholm, they issued a statement welcoming the developments, but indicating that the way forward now had to be in the form of a negotiation. So were they completely taken by surprise? It's open to question. Who was taken by surprise and who not within the ANC? is still an open question. The evidence is there that there were people who were still suspicious of the apartheid regime's agenda, but there were also comrades who were feeling that now we have to face this reality and we have to take advantage of the moment that has arrived and exploit it. Okay, thank you. Angela, there's a question on Twitter from Zanzi um, Gandama on Trini Ndebele. They want to know, what role did Chris Hani to play in the negotiations? If not, why not? Before we do, let's hold on to that. Let's see if we have the editor of the Sowetan, Nwabisa Makonga, to make uh, inputs, Nwabisa, or a question for Uncle Mac. And just before we get on to 
get a Mr. Palo Jordan. Um, thank you very much, Sam, um, and good evening, colleagues. Uh, Mr. Maharaj, thank you very much for, for joining us. I, um, I really, I mean, I, I enjoyed this book, and I think, um, you know, I absolutely agree with you um, when you say that, you know, for us to understand not only where we are, but also where we are going, we actually should understand where we come from. And one of the things I think, you know, is quite timely and important about it is effectively, as you say, based on facts, based on, uh, you know, what was effectively recorded at the time. And, and I think people are able to engage with it however way, whether, you know, critically, um, whether they, you know, it sheds light um, and they're able to understand better in granular detail, you know, what it is that, that happened. So thank you very much um, for this body of work. I think it is absolutely timely. Perhaps if I may just ask a question, um, Sam, just to abuse, to abuse the platform. I think um, one, of the, one of the first things that came to mind for me was, you know, yes, we, we, we are writing this, yes, of course, you know, um, to understand where we come from. And there's, a, there's always a debate in, in, in South Africa, particularly um, among young people, about how some of the things were dealt with, some of the decisions that we made. And of course, with the benefit of hindsight, and, you know, and people are able to say, oh, well, you know, this could have been done better and that could have been done, done better. How do you um, hope particularly young people actually engage um, you know, with this book, what is it that you're hoping um, that they would read and understand? And again, even if they, they engage critically with it, but at least the one thing that you hope that they were able to walk away from, to walk away with in truly understanding our history. Thank you. Let's have uh, Uncle Mick uh, respond to you. Thank you, Mr. Maharaj. Thank you, Nobisa, for that uh, welcome and welcoming the book. Let me say this about facts. If there is any relevant fact that we have missed out in the, that happened in the period 1980 to 1990, we would welcome people putting those facts on the table so that they become part of the analysis. Paolo and I are of the firm view that to understand our past, we need to engage in a conversation amongst ourselves, but to engage, that conversation needs to be premised on facts that we've agreed upon and not so much on assumptions which are unproven. Because when you are debate around assumptions, you find yourself running around in circles. And we believe that when the facts are on the table and if anything is missing, we are ready to welcome that then the debate changes and that, and we would really want the current generation to interrogate the past, not on the basis that Paulo says so and Max says so, therefore it's true. We want them to debate the matter on the basis, yes, these are the facts. Now, place yourself in the situation of Mandela, of Tambo, of the national executive, of the leadership of the UDF, of the leadership of Kosatu at that time with the knowledge that they had at that time. How would you conduct yourself in order to promote the freedom of our people? That is a, is a way in which we would urge the young people to confront our past so that they appropriate what happened in the past 
into their understanding of the present. We learn, I believe, in life through our mistakes. And therefore, we need to always look at our past with a critical eye because we want to detect if there was a wrong move because it is from those wrong moves that we will learn best. However, with that caveat, I would say to you that in this book, we have put three documents as annexures in full. What I would say to you is read the Harare Declaration carefully. It was a document adopted by the special committee appointed by the Organization of African Unity at that time. It met in Harare under the chairmanship of the president of Egypt. It had a presentation made of a draft that was prepared by Oliver Tambo and the ANC in consultation with the frontline states. And it was adopted at that meeting. It was then taken to the OAU heads of state and they adopted it. And they took it then to the United Nations and the United Nations adopted it. Why do I urge people to read that? Because it states how the South African liberation and democratic forces, together with the continent as a whole, saw the way forward in South Africa and defined the roadmap to our overthrowing apartheid. So those who then begin to claim that they were, we should have done X and Y and Z, need to take into account the thinking of the time, the advice of all the heads of state, especially our continent Africa, because we had to move together. And what was there in southern, on the southern tip of our continent was the last colonial output. So then it is against that that you have to see it. And if I may then quickly move over to the role of Comrade Chris Harney. Before you do, Uncle Michael, let me interrupt you. I just want to see if Uncle Paolo is on the line. Hello, I'm young man. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm so, I'm so happy to, to hear your voice. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. <laughs> You're doing fine. Doing fine. Just, just fine. Just fine. It's wonderful. Congratulations on the book, uh, by the way. It's, uh, also, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. And uh, sorry for the delays in getting you on. I know we've been trying on the, in, in the background and uh, really uh, wonderful uh, to have you. And I'm here with uh, Uncle Mac uh, in, in Devon. We're talking. We've got colleagues, Noamisa Makunga on the line, Mansala Sitaluhile, and the number of people, uh, South Africans, mainly happy to hear about this book. Let's get your broad views and the importance of doing uh, this uh, book now, especially as I'd like to read another book about your organization's failures in government. But why is this one important? Well, I think Mac has explained sufficiently the importance of the book because it's a recounting of uh, how we got to Krutuskia in 1990 and from Krutuskia to Kodesa. Uh, that is its significance. And I think in understanding that process, uh, we have to appreciate that uh, what was uh, being, what was unfolding uh, 
was a strategy which the ANC had devised uh, in the late 60s and had tried to put into operation during the 70s and the 80s, uh, which comprised uh, four different interlocking planes. I think Mac has explained about uh, the importance of the ANC's underground and the significance of mass mobilization, armed action, and international solidarity. Now, those interlocking and interpenetrating phenomena were what drove the movement forward. And in the end, uh, we had reached a point where we had so politically isolated the apartheid regime that one can say that politically the apartheid regime had been defeated. We had not defeated it militarily, but politically it had been defeated. And all the forces inside the country who were in earnest about democracy had converged around the program of the ANC. Uh, That Harari Declaration, which was adopted by the Conference of Democracy in December 89, has that significance, as do others. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, uh, Paolo, you're still on the line. Can you hear us? Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> no, wonderful, man, really. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing to see uh, the two of you uh, coming on and, and writing this book. And I was wondering as well, uh, chatting to Uncle Macby here, I like uh, this the little thing about uh, Madiba, how Madiba uh, referred to him as a Nukepe. How much of that folklore do you know? I would imagine... You were fed this from your own family. This great history of writers, authors in your own family as well. Do you, you know that nickname, Ngopepe, how Matiba referred to Uncle Mac? No, I did know that. In fact, it's the first time I hear it. And I think you're giving away Mac's secrets. You shouldn't tell everything about Mac. There's some, there must be some mystery attaching to the man. But Palo, but Palo. Yes, I, I must find time to expose you as being not sufficiently literate in, uh, in Kosa folklore. Ngopepe was the name of a character in the folklore who had one eye. No, no, I know, but I'm saying he's giving away your secrets. You <laughs> see, that had his funny nicknames. <laughs> and I'm saying, mustn't give away all the secrets about the man. Okay. He must remain, there must be some. Then I would imagine you also don't know the other name he had. When he went uh, to uh, in Germany now, uh, where they called him what? What did they call you, Uncle Mick? Robin name. Das. Robin Das, there's another name. There's another name. Yeah. Yeah, you see? Well, okay, he, wants that... give away, he wants to give away secrets. That's cool with me. I'm not going <laughs> to give away any of mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks uh, for that. And welcome, uh, uh, Paolo Jola uh, uh, Jordan. Let's go back, Uncle Mac, to the question you still had to deal with. Krisani, uh, the Krisani question. What role did uh, Chonyane play? And uh, if not, why not? Comrade Chris was always a person who spoke frankly what he thought was the situation at any given time. In the case of the build-up towards negotiations, he was deeply concerned 
that we should not find ourselves prematurely in negotiations and find ourselves in a situation which is being manipulated by the apartheid regime and the Western powers. So he approached matters with a great skepticism. And he was one who thought that we should always at the leadership be talking to each other, frankly, openly. When 1990 arrived, Chris still had a bit of reservations in his mind, but his reservations became stronger when he found that the apartheid regime was using the idea of the release of political prisoners and the return of exiles by doing it individually, person by person, and dragging the process out. He happened to be in the Transkai at that time when the Vula arrest began. And it increased his concerns about what we were entering into. So when the national executive in July around 20th, 21st, 22nd, decided that it would go to the Pretoria talks in August 6th on the basis that it would surprise the regime by unilaterally suspending the armed struggle in order to force the pace of negotiations. Chris was deeply concerned and publicly expressed his concern. But he has publicly explained that when Madiba was able to brief him and discuss the matter and explain the circumstances under which that decision was taken, Chris came fully on board. He was part of the delegation at CODESA and its successor, the multi-party talks, and he was committed to the outcome. He was part of the decision to walk out of CODESA when the Boipatong massacre took place, and it is during that period when we were still working our way to getting the negotiations back on track that Chris was assassinated. His assassination had the potential to trigger a conflagration of our country. Violence had begun and properties were being destroyed. But it took the leadership of the ANC in discussions with Madiba, who was at that time in the Transkai, to come over to Johannesburg and go on TV to make a statement which focused on the meaning of Chris's life. And he said in that statement that the best way to honor Chris was to make sure we brought democracy to fruition sooner rather than later, and that we should not throw away the gains that we had made. It is on that basis that he appealed for calm and dedication to pursue negotiations with vigor. And it happened at a time when Madiba, through that television broadcast, became the de facto president of South Africa. Comrade Palo, he's on the line, was part of the team that drafted that statement that Madiba made on television. At a time when F.W. de Klerk was the president of South Africa, but powerless to deal with the situation. I think also it's going to be important to point out that in all the meetings that led first to the drafting of the Harari Declaration, 
its adoption first by the national executive of the ANC, and then its submission to the OAU Special Committee, and the very meeting in Harare where it was adopted. Uh, Comrade Chris was there. He was very supportive of the process. We all had skepticisms about the process, including myself, much as I had been very deeply involved in the drafting, etc. But he was supportive of the process. I think it's important to underline that. And the impression that some people like to create that somehow Chris was opposed to what the ANC was doing, I mean, that's just unfounded nonsense. Okay, I think um, perhaps Sam is having some tech problems. May I please invite uh, Matlala to make some input? I know you've been waiting for for quite a while, and then soon after we'll open the floor for questions. Matlala? Uh, thanks, thanks, Rabisa. And uh, thanks to, to, to our t- t- distinguished guest, uh, Paolo Jalan and Mac Maharaj. And firstly, thanks for the role that you have played into ensuring that South Africa realizes its its liberation. Um, I would like just to pose pose uh, two simple questions to the two gentlemen. Look, with the understanding that the negotiations towards sensation, I mean, the Cordesa. Uh, negotiations and the subsequent negotiations that led into the democratization of our country were a compromise, or rather the outcomes thereof were a compromise, not only between the apartheid South Africa and the ANC and other political parties at the time, but within the ANC as well. And noting that 30 years has passed and understanding that hindsight is always twenty twenty. Would you think that the Codesa outcomes yielded the envisaged future that the ANC at the time of those negotiations uh, had in mind? And if that's not the case, what would you do differently? And do you think most of that would have, or rather, if we don't have the envisaged future as 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 as, as approaching? Uh, the, the negotiations. Do you think most of that has to do with the negotiations themselves or the current character of the ANC? And secondly, I noted which is something that I agree with, uh, that we have so much to learn from the past. Uh, based on that statement, what do you think the current generation, particularly the youth, could learn from this past of ours uh, from the Codesa negotiations and things that have transpired uh, since the negotiations in the last 30 years or so, essentially. Thanks. Yeah, I think if I could come in there, Sam. Yes, please go ahead, sir. Yes. I think uh, to understand the visions of the various uh, parties that participated first at Hrutaskir and then at Kodesum. Let's look at uh, the Harari Declaration that was de- that was referred to by Mac and myself. Let's look also at the constitutional guidelines which the ANC had drawn up and had distributed inside the country, which were very widely discussed 
within the mass democratic movement by COSATU, by the UDF, by other forces, and compare that with what the NP wanted, what the DA wanted, what the IFP wanted, what the various homeland parties wanted. Compare that with what we have in our constitution. And I think much as one might, might say that negotiations inevitably do uh, entail a degree of compromise, the vision that the ANC had placed before South Africa in those constitutional guidelines is what is in our constitution today. The NP came to Khrutskir and to Odessa uh, with the notion of group rights. Uh, the DA came with the notion of what it called consociationism. And they explicitly had said that this was uh, to contain what they referred to as majoritarianism. In other words, to thwart uh, the will, the political will of the African majority. Uh, we know what the IFP's role was. It was in the negotiations, was out of the negotiations, it was going to participate in the elections. And in fact, in the end, it only came into the elections at the 11th hour. Now, when we look at the outcomes produced by negotiations, would we say then that the ANC has realized all it wanted to? No, of course not. But most of what is in the Constitution is the vision of the ANC, not that of the NP, not that of the DA, not of the parties from the homelands and others. It's not the vision of those who wanted to sustain white domination in one form or another. What I think the youth and the young people can take from this is that uh, <clears throat> it was called a struggle because it was a struggle. It was not a snuggle. It was tough, and you had to be realistic about what was, what you could attain and could not attain. So uh, I have said in writing that uh, we ended up with much more than we had, but perhaps much less than we had originally striven for. And I think that's where the compromise is. Thank you. Thank you, Paolo Jordan, Nwabisa, Matala. Hope you can hear us now. Uh, it's what a lovely, beautiful uh, phrase that uh, Paolo Jordan, it was not a snuggle, it was a struggle. And <laughs> Uncle Mac is giggling away here, the young man Kativa referred to as Ngopepe. Mac Maharaj, uh, over to you. I would just simply add to Comrade Paolo that just as the book we have written has put the facts of what happened between 84 and 90 to bring about the first meeting between the apartheid regime and the ANC at Kutuskir in May, it is necessary that when we talk about the issue of compromises, we need to populate that discussion with the facts of what happened between 1990 and 1994. In fact, I would go further and extend that period to 1996, when the final constitution was adopted and also the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Act was adopted. Now, unfortunately, we have not written that story and nobody has dealt with that story in the way in which it populates all the facts. However, 
The question of compromises has arisen from time to time in public discussion, but not informed by any concrete evidence. More often it is by assumption. I have once engaged with a person who wrote a book and in interviewing him about that book, I asked him what compromises does he see in the constitution? And he had great difficulty. I had to help him out. We wanted, and the Harare Declaration wanted a democracy for South Africa based on the principle of equality and one person, one vote. We achieved that, but in the interim period between 1994, we were governed by an interim constitution until the final constitution was adopted in 1996. In that period, we had promised in that constitution that there would be a government of national unity in which every party that won more than 5% of the votes would have a proportional seat in the cabinet of the government of national unity. That was a dilution of majority rule. It was a compromise on our principle, but it was limited to an existence of not more than five years maximum. I remember very well going to Madiba to report on the outcome of the discussions in order to see whether what we were discussing now at the multi-party was acceptable. And Comrade Joslovo was there, Comrade Cyril um, Ramaphosa was there, and Madiba asked us one question. He says, does this take us to majority rule? And when he sensed that we were a bit hesitant in answering him, he said, how long before we reach majority rule? And we said very boldly, five years. He said, five years maximum or five years minimum? We said, five years maximum. He said, agreed. We said, can we brief you now about the details? He said, comrades, I trust you. We've got a job to do to win the elections. Go ahead, sign. I will be there tomorrow to sign. That was a major compromise. The second was the concern about the apartheid regime, about its constituency. And it raised the specter of dissatisfaction in the security forces and the civil service. And that proposal was dealt with by means of a proposal put up in the public space by Slovo in the article is called the Sunset Clauses, in which we assured all people in the civil service and the security sector that they would have their jobs and their status for a maximum of five years. What did that mean in practice? Read it carefully because I was a minister in the first government and to me, my director general that I inherited from the apartheid system, I could have shifted him to make him literally my driver, provided I paid him the salary of the director general. <laughs> That was what the compromise was. Now, I'm putting a few facts on the table and I'm inviting people that when we engage in this discussion type of discussion, can we populate the discussion with an agreed set of facts 
that can be verified show that we are actually engaged in a co constructive conversation. Once we agree on the facts that are relevant, you will find our mode of conversation will change from just being critical, it will change into become co-partners in finding a solution to the way forward. And that is my appeal to all generations living in current day South Africa. I know my time is up, but I believe that we need an intergenerational conversation founded on the current generation, but based on the facts so that when we disagree, we can find ways to agree to disagree, but overall, we agree on how to move forward. Okay, interesting. I don't think your time is, is up at all, uh, Uncle Mac. I know you've been wishing and wanting. Don't call me Uncle Mac. Why don't you call Paolo Uncle Mac also? Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go again. I know this whole back ages now. We've had this conversation. I may have started this. In the past, I noted that a particular band of politicians, especially who came from Robin Island, your Becky, Wom um, Ray, I was very lucky to have interacted with those guys in Port Elizabeth. I was just fascinated with this. Um, um, um. How come these Pat African, uh, black African guys, only them were called the uh, um, and, <laughs> and uh, the English speaking uh, Africans as well, like Uncle Mac or Uncle that um. Okay, Uncle Mac and I have had this banter for ages now, and uh, he allows me to call him uh, Uncle and um. Uh, sometimes, Uncle Paolo, uh, <laughs> Jola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you are no, no, if, and... if you insist, if you insist, I'm Uncle. Most people say Bra. Bra Paolo, Bra Paolo, Bra Paolo. Tell us, tell us, tell us, Why must? No, before we do, Pakamisa Nzamela has published a stunning book uh, on the history of black business. It's, it's going to launch. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but he has a question. Uh, Paramisa, can you hear us come through? Um, <clears throat> thank you, Sam. Thank you to Sowetan Live. Thank you, Nwabisa. And uh, thanks to Uncle Mac. Thanks to <laughs> Ndadebalo for this opportunity to ask questions. I've bought your book. I'd encourage everybody to buy the book because it's got a lot of archival sources. It is not a tertiary-based uh, book resource. But here's my question. <clears throat> what was the role of established business in the breakthrough? And if it had any role after 1994, and are there any regrets around that? Thank you. Well, uh, if you're talking about established business, I think we have to talk about, you know, a highly diversified established business. One of the uh, first meetings that we had with members of the uh, white establishment uh, after the uh, Cubware Conference in 1985 was a delegation led by Gammon Rally from the Anglo-American Corporation. Uh, Mac and I and Chris uh, Arney were all at that meeting. There were subsequent meetings 
But now with the African and black business community, we had a very important engagement, for instance, with DAFCOC in 1986-87, which was of a very different complexion to the meeting we'd had with Gavin Reilly and uh, white business. Then we had subsequent meetings, for example, with the Western Cape uh, Traders Association, which was a predominantly black business organization uh, comprising mainly uh, uh, Asian and current business people from the Western Cape, also very different from the engagement with uh, Gavin Reilly and others, but very much like the meeting we'd had with NAFCOC. So I think uh, there are different roles that were played by different business communities in the transition. One of the things which tends to be forgotten and uh, unfortunately has been elided, I think, in the history of our struggle, uh, the Elections in Namibia came before we had elections here in South Africa. And the apartheid regime had done a very clever trick where uh, in anticipation of those elections in Namibia, they had made sure that every minibus, every uh, uh, potential taxi, uh, every bus uh, was not available to Swapo. And uh, that could have ruined Swapo's election campaign. Swapo then sent a delegation to us in Lusaka and said, look, chaps, uh, we can't get any transport for our people in the elections in Namibia. Can you help? And we were able to turn to the black business community, like NAFCOC, like uh, the Western Cape Traders and others. And they were the ones who organized many buses and transport for Swapo in that election. Those are the sorts of roles that business played, established business. But of course, we could not get that from Gavin, really. You see, we had to go to black business to, to do that. So I think we must differentiate the roles played by the various portions of business with respect to democracy. Post-94, well, that's a completely different story because after 94 then, there was at least political equality between Dr. Sam Mutsuenyana and Gavin Reilly, which was not there before 1994. Can I, can I add, uh, uh, if we go to the book on page 104, in preparation for the meeting with the delegation headed by Gavin Reilly of the Anglo-American the national executive of the ANC discussed the matter thoroughly. And we had a contention of ideas as to how we should approach it. What we have is preserved the notes that President Tambo made and asked the question, what do we want from the business at that meeting? And he asked, what do they want from us? That note is reproduced in the book, and it is most instructive about the strategy and tactics of the liberation movement, which I would say the entire democratic forces led by the ANC. He says, what do we require from the monopolists, and what do the big capitalists want from us? 
And he says the ANC's task was to get South African business to increase pressure on the regime, which, quote, should be consonant with creating an atmosphere in which the issue about talks about talks can be broached. Our role, he wrote, must be to try and bring about a split between the regime and the monopolists. Our role must be to exacerbate what tensions exist between the two. And he continued, nothing we do or say during the discussion must indicate that we are willing to bargain away our claims in return for some vague promises from the monopolists. We must ensure that they leave here determined to demonstrate to us that they are distant from both of place before them a number of con conditions to prove their bona fides. I'm reading that out to say to you that we must never allow any of the forces to be seen as homogeneous. We must look for the lines, the fault lines between them, and we must seek to draw and maximize the resources on our side in order to pursue the goals of creating a better life for all. Hmm. Okay, okay. Let's go back a little bit. I know Pagamisa has a question and we'd like to invite anybody else who'd like to ask a question. Please send us a message uh, in asking to be a speaker and we'll make sure you come through to ask a question. I want to go around um, uh, Bra Palu. Uh, before we're going to come back to the thrust of the matter, but I'm just keen to understand, uh, maybe lightheartedly as well, in how you rate the writing uh, in this book, especially coming from you. You know, I ate your parents' writing for breakfast. Uh, AC Jordan, Ingumbo, Yeminyanya, your mom. As well, great writer, highly respected and decorated. I'd like to know how you score this book, and I'm going to go to Mac Maharaj. Mac wrote a book, he co wrote this book uh, with Prayag Omali. It's one of the best books uh, on, on, on the history of South Africa and in, in the post 94 era. Uh, Shades, it's called, Uncle Mac. Shades of Difference. Shades of Difference. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I want to know from Mac Maharaj how he rates the writing uh, in uh, this book. But before we do, Pagamisa and Zamela has a follow-up fresh uh, from publishing a book that is launching uh, next week. Uh, Pagamisa, come through. Nwabisa, you might have a question too. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Sam. Um, by the way, uncles and everybody on the platform, I've just published a book called Native Merchants. It traces black business in the pre-colonial era, that is mining, but the focus is on the 19th and early 20th century. Now, if you go back to the Tomlinson Commission, you will discover that in the minutes, and this is not me, this is just me being bored reading the Tomlinson minutes. They never wanted, there was an issue with black people dominating the urban areas. And the apartheid government then was stressed on how do they manage 
the dominance of black people in the urban areas. And so people came up with what was called the BIC, Bantu Investment Corporation. And what the Bantu Investment Corporation did, funded from Pretoria, of course, was to allow black people in the native reserves to acquire businesses that were started by white people. Now, if now here's 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 a question, and, and, and the reason why they did that, it was to keep the native in the reserve. If the native was not wanted in the reserve, they were labor, according to Tomlinson, Uncle Mac, and uh, and Adepal. It's not it's not my opinion. It's the minutes. Now here's a question: In the breakthrough, and Adepalo and Mac mention a diversity of stakeholders in the breakthrough process that is in business. And I'm grateful that they've explained a non-homogeneous process because in public, we always hear about a homogeneous process. Now, if there was a non-homogeneous or a heterogeneous process, how come is it that in the breakthrough process, the business stakeholders that were involved, I'm talking established white business, came to dominate and call it affirm their interests when democracy came. What happened with established black players that led them not to dominate and become monopolies post-94? if the breakthrough was really heterogeneous. Thank you. Yes, I think it's very important that you refer us back to the Tomlinson Commission, and you can refer us even further back to earlier ones, like the Stalag Commission of the 1920s, and you can refer us also to the Fagan Commission of the 1940s. The thrust of... uh, not only apartheid, but white domination has always been to deny and to suppress and to crush the possibility of an African or a black property-owning class to emerge. Even that BIC, which you refer to, was more a, you know, a, a sham trick which the National Party wanted to play on the African people. Uh, It was never intended to build an African business community or an African property-owning class. It was never intended to do that. It was just a device to try and persuade African businesses who, despite everything, were operating in the urban areas to leave the urban areas. If you look at the struggle and the uh, uh, meetings and... uh, confrontations between uh, NAFCOC and the regime during the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. You can see that again. You see, in fact, even the fact that NAFCOC transformed itself into a federation was a response to attempts by the regime to frustrate the emergence of a black business community. When It was originally established, it was established as an African Chamber of Commerce. 
not as a national federated chamber of commerce. When they Correct. met the regime, uh, the minister of uh, what is it called BAD, I suppose, Budget Administration Development, said to them, look, we recognize so many different Bantu nations. We don't recognize a single Bantu nation. So if you want to talk to us, you have to come as a Zulu, Chamber of Commerce, a Sutu Chamber of Commerce, a Mapedi Chamber of Commerce, etc., etc., etc. Because the African business community was clear-minded enough to recognize what was at play, they said, no, no, we're not going to go that direction. But in order not to go into a direct confrontation, they then transformed themselves into a federation of Chambers of Commerce, but not and it is important to underline not ethnically defined chambers of commerce. We must remember that. Now, given the fact that African business, black business in general, had been <clears throat> frustrated and uh, in many ways uh, just discouraged, 1990-1994, the African business community is relatively weak compared to the white business community. And even today, it is relatively weak compared to the white business community and therefore cannot be as assertive as it could be. That might account for why uh, dominant white business uh, then you know, could have an apparently bigger role in what was happening post-1994. But we must never undermine nor must we neglect the struggles played by the African business community in the drive towards democracy, especially in the period after 1986-87. Very important. And we must build upon that. I don't know if Uncle Mac wants to add anything. Um, he may not be able to at this stage. However, I just want to, to uh, pose a question just as, as a follow-up to that, uh, Mr. Jordan. Right. I mean... You speak about uh, a black business that is um, that has been weakened, and and one of the things that honestly come to mind for me is, I mean, how much um, of of responsibility do you believe the ANC should take as far as that is concerned? In the sense that, you know, not just black business, by the way, but just community structures, you know, your NGOs, um, you know, even in the labor in the uh, um, in the labor sector. Um, I think what has happened and what we've seen. Um, you know, uh, uh, post-94 has been, whether intentionally or not, but a, quite a systemic weakening of structures that at the time, perhaps at your time, perhaps we thought would be sort of the pillars of this new democratic project. And and and, and they've become quite, quite weakened over time. And I think for me, perhaps I'd like to hear your thoughts just about, you know, how much responsibility you believe the ANC should take, but also how do these uh, formations kind of see themselves beyond, uh, you know, a, a, a an ANC regime, so to speak. I don't think it is the task of the ANC to be the mobilizer of uh, the black business community. Uh, we mobilize the entire community. We try to organize and mobilize all of South African society in its diversity, recognizing its diversity. Of course, given the fact that the overwhelming majority of the oppressed black people then 
and the black people today in a liberated South Africa are from the laboring classes. Uh, they are overrepresented in the ANC, and perhaps the laboring classes uh, and their interests have a far higher profile uh, in the ANC's program as a result of that. that. But that's because we represent a community comprising mainly of people who are working people rather than people who own businesses and are property owners. Now, what have we done to try to <clears throat> open the gates and uh, create opportunities for black business to expand? I think you just have to look at the statute books. Uh, there are all sorts of laws there about uh, preferential hiring. There were the attempts I'm not saying they were very successful at black economic empowerment, broad-based broad black economic empowerment. There are the equity laws, etc. All these are attempts to begin to open up opportunities and create opportunities for this black business community. But I don't think the black business community also should be sitting back and waiting for the ANC or for the government to do for it. They I just want to add to Comrade Palo's well. point in, in relation to Nobisa's question. Because I think her question goes beyond uh, business. Uh, take the, the labor sector. I think the record of the post-94 democratic government is that it proceeded from the basis that there is an unequal relationship between the owners and the workers. And therefore, it crafted a set of legislation and mechanisms that tried to create a basis of a more equal terrain in which their bargaining uh, could take place. How effective that instrument has been, how effectively we've used it, and how much our dream that we would be then ending up in a country in which the trade union movement would belong to one federation in one country has not been realized. But the, the responsibility for that cannot be placed uniquely and solely at the door of the African National Congress. We need to interrogate that question with the changes that have been going on in the structure of labor within our society, what has happened to the unions, and how come, instead of unifying into one federation, they've broken up into numerous federations. And how come one industry, one federation has become more a nature of general federation, general unions? So that those are the type of questions that need to be interrogated against the facts of the development, not with a view to putting blame, but more with a view to learning from the mistakes, both errors of omission and commission during the period of building our democracy. I would add one last point quickly, that it is in our constitution that we should take extreme pride that our constitution mentions the role of civil society. There are not many constitutions in the world that acknowledge civil society as having a role beyond the organized political parties. Whether that has been realized and to the extent to which it is realized, is a responsibility of society as a whole. And yes, I have responsibility for the industry as the leading force, organizational force in our country. So that's the context, but it must be interrogated beyond the sphere of looking or who to blame 
and rather how do we learn from that and move forward? Interesting, interesting. I don't know if I agree with this. I can see the the protectionism here with the author. The author doesn't want to be blamed uh, for what uh, we are going through and uh, the feeling coming from some illegitimate aspects of our society uh, or sections of society uh, that uh, we didn't get uh, what uh, we deserved or everything we deserved to get uh, out of the deal. But I can absolutely hear the sense from the author that uh, we shouldn't just uh, blame uh, him and his generation for uh, what uh, we have. But then with all the skills that were there, Paulo Jordan, to manage uh, South Africa and the ANC into uh, the, the, the talks. What's wrong now that we can't seem to manage anything uh, as society, but also your party, the ruling party, it cannot manage anything uh, about uh, itself, whether or not it, it has employed Carl Niehaus, whether or not it can register people, I'm surprised it knows what time it is right now. And how come with such skill historically, we're in such a mess with the leadership we have? Maybe, Sam, sorry, sorry. Maybe before we, can I please exhaust myself on the on the business side because the elders <laughs> here, and I'm sorry for calling them elders, but they are really giving us lessons. <clears throat> and these are not lessons for blaming, but lessons for understanding history so that we can provide solutions. And that is the idea of the book, <clears throat> Breakthrough. <clears throat> now, no doubt, as I write in Native Merchants, black people have always had the ability to raise capital. Abantubatu was started through capital of black people. African Bank was started through capital of black people. I mean, I mentioned a number of businesses or native merchants in the 1800s that were started by black people sourcing capital amongst themselves. In the post-1994 era, and Datengu Pepe introduces a dynamic which is largely unknown, it was union money that was used to raise money to participate in established capitalism or mainstream capitalism. Now here is a question, and it is not a blameworthy question. It is an inquisitive question, Uncle Mac and Ndate Palo. It, it is an inquiry to learn for me and you know, to, to even write better in the future. Now, if black people can raise capital, it's been demonstrated in history, right? And, and, and we all agree. Now, this is how capitalists are built globally, from the robber barons of America to the Asians. The state plays a role in building a capitalist class. If you go to Japan, Mitsubishi, it became Mitsubishi because it was unbundled. The state unbundled those shipping assets and automotive assets to an Asian business class. That, by the way, did not have much capital, but ultimately they dominated. What has stopped 
the state which has been led by an NC government to unbundle the bulk of the assets to a black business class that can build a monopoly. Because we know historically that monopolies are built on the assistance of the state. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it's one of the things that uh, they very often omit uh, in business studies at universities, the role that capitalist states have played in terms of assisting uh, the development of capitalism. Uh, but as I indicated earlier, the greater part of the ANC's constituency consists of people who are non-property owners. And uh, it's not just an accident that we are non-property owners. It was by design that the majority of black people in this country are not property owners. Despite that, they've been able to mobilize the resources they have available. And as you mentioned, for example, union money was involved in establishing uh, ENCA, one of uh, the uh, free-to-air uh, broadcasting corporations we have in this country. And uh, union money was used in establishing other uh, corporations. Now, I don't see the ANC as uh, the instrument of an African or a black business community, uh, which is therefore going to use the state uh, as a means of assisting the growth and the development of that black capitalist class. I don't see the ANC as playing that role. What we have tried to do as government is to create the opportunities for black business to get into the field. Of course, the playing fields, unfortunately, are not level, given the fact that you've had in over 100 years of advantage for the white business community. But as far as is possible, we have tried to level the playing fields. Now, have we succeeded in doing that? I don't think so, uh, because even our BEE schemes, many of them are co-opted, uh, many of them are diverted by this dominant white business community. But it's going to be up to the black business community itself to start getting up and doing and not look to the ANC. I don't, I'd like, for instance, to know uh, uh, what role NAFCOC is playing in the present period, for example, uh, with respect to the projects that you're talking about. There used to be the other outfit, the Federation of Black uh, business. business. I'd like to know uh, to what extent has there been unity created between the Federation of uh, Black Business and NAFCOC? I'd like to know, for example, what cooperation there is between uh, outfits like what used to be called the Western Cape Traders Association and an operation like NAFCOC and others, because there are other operations in other parts of the country as well. You see, they should be up if there and come in themselves. Not if I may come in to, to, to take the points state. being made by Paulo further, let me remind ourselves that the critical task of the way forward in 1994 was to use that democratic platform 
and carry the multiplicity of formations within our society to move together in step. Not to side and overweight the matter on one formation or social formation or the other, but to balance their needs. Because if we just simply leaned on one side, we would be diminishing the strategic strength that comes from pulling us together as we did in the phase of overthrowing white minority rule. Now, we can look at that experience and understand that the debate, for example, of what Pagamisa calls the unbundling of state assets, perhaps one of the, not perhaps in my view, one of the mistakes we made was to take all the state-owned enterprises that white colonialism and apartheid had created and simply keep them without interrogating each one and ask, is it playing a role? And what role is it playing in our economy? So there was a debate. And again, we got trapped in ideological thinking and overwhelmed by that thinking instead of that thinking asking, how do we broaden the base of our movement forward to build this one nation? So the interest of developing a black business community needed to be taken into account with the interests that are being expressed by the workers. And that debate needed to take place against facts rather than simply sitting in each their own ideological corners. Everybody is entitled to their ideological way of thinking and approaching matters. But it is important that to take our country forward in order to build one nation out of the diversity of our peoples where we were brought up to fear each other in order to, into a society where our diversity is our wealth needed for us strategically to pull everybody together. It therefore pains me at times that even at the business sector, the unity that was developing in the struggle against apartheid, even amongst the churches, the coming together that was taking place across the interfaiths, all that seems to begin to figure away. And the base of our movement forward is narrowing. So it concerns me when we look at that. And I think we need to put our minds together, both from the point of view of espousing our particular class interests in this situation, but making sure that we articulate those interests within the framework of an interest of the nation as a whole. And that debate and conversation can only take place on the basis of critically looking at what we've done to learn from it. I, it pains me that the idea of the unity of the oppressed, which came to embrace the word black under black consciousness, and where the distinction within the communities within the black were used by calling us African or Indian or so-called colored, has now gone where black is being used to mean African. And this is being done by leading thinkers. Are we thinking through where we are going? Are we learning from our past? Are we maximizing the strength that we need from all sectors of our society to move forward? Or are we allowing ourselves to occupy a narrow space 
in the spectrum of social forces? These are questions that we need to put together as we try to articulate the interests of each of our social formations as we go forward. I'm going to exhaust myself, Sam, and I won't say anything further. I'm exhausting myself now. <laughs> I agree with the uncles. I agree with the uncles. Totally. I mean, <clears throat> this is not a call. My questions are not based on destroying what is established. I do not come from that school of thought that says destroy what is established. But there has been an opportunity <clears throat> by the state which is led by the ANC government to unbundle assets and give them to black business people. And that has not happened. Instead, the policy framework has been based on black people acquiring minority non-management control interests in established business affirming commercial interests of established business. I'm not calling for the dismantlement of, 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 of established business. That would be non-productive. But I'm still asking uncles, what has stopped the movement, which I also belong to, what has, what has stopped the movement from using its state resources to unbundle to a proper black business class? There's no shortage of capital amongst black communities. Absolutely not. What has stopped that? I pause and I will never make a statement again. All I'll ask for, Sam and, and, and colleagues, in the in the in the platform, please buy native merchants. It is not based on 1994. It is based on how black people raised capital in deep colonial times. And by the way, Sam, the people who started the ANC were not business people because of 1994. They were business people before 1994. They had the ability. And the intellectual capability to raise capital. Thank you. Thank you. You're starting a conversation about another book <laughs> that, that you must write. Uh, thank you very much. I need to get Tebo Hokas, Mzi Malunga, Kaifas Hosana, Kusta in that order. I'm afraid we have to get out of here by 9 p.m. I did promise the young man. Uh, Mac Maharaj, Paulo Jordan, that we will be out of this by 9 p.m. They've got more exciting things to do than just uh, listen to me. And uh, let's go get the question. Zimalunga, Tebuho, Kas, Kusta, Kaifas Kosana. My question um, is, is obviously directed to the gentleman, starting with uh, Mr. Jordan. If the document that emerged out of the negotiations, which is the Constitution, had been, for a lack of, of, of a better word, had been more radical, if it didn't contain, for example, the sunset clause, if it had legislated for, for example, the wholesale expro expropriation of white-owned land without compensation, if, 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 if it had permitted nationalization of banks, for example, energy firms, do you think that 
the argument that that would have uh, um, created a more equal society. Would it have created a more equal society, or would it have created a a a would have would it have ruined this economy and this country? Thank you. I think that's a very important question, uh, and I think uh, we should look at our constitution very closely. There is no sunset clause in the constitution, uh, right? And we should make the mistake of thinking that there is such a thing as a sunset clause in our constitution. What our constitution does very specifically say, and people tend to undermine it, it does make the provision that, and it mandates measures to address the consequences and the results of past oppression and discriminatory policies. Now, unfortunately, what has happened is that uh, the democratic lawyers, uh, those lawyers and those legal people uh, who in earnest are interested in the causes you're talking about, have not used that aspect of the Constitution in the manner that they could. You see, even the, even, even the issue of uh, land can be addressed by invoking that dimension of the Constitution, which says that measures have to be taken to redress the consequences of oppression, discrimination, and racism. Now, no one actually wants to use that dimension of the Constitution for that purpose. Instead, people want the Constitution to be amended. There's nothing wrong in amending a Constitution. The most, uh, the first democratic Constitution refers to the clauses in that Constitution as amendments. That is the United States Constitution, indicating that Constitutions are eminently amendable. So ours also is amendable, and I'm not opposed to the amendment of our Constitution. But what I am saying is that we should harness what there is in the Constitution for that purpose. Now, if on the other hand, Caiaphas is suggested that having come into office, the ANC then should have said, okay, uh, as from this day, we are passing like the Herzog, no, it was Huerta's government, I'm sorry, it wasn't Herzog's government. Uh, a nat they passed the Natives Land Act 1913 that we should have passed perhaps uh, a 1996... Yes, we can hear you, Paolo, uh, uh, over there. <laughs> let's let's uh, carry on, and we have to start preparing to wrap up this wonderful conversation, but there's still a couple of people who... Would... Let me just give a quick comment on Kaifish. Thank you. Kaifish, uh, the sunset clauses was only in the interim constitution and disappeared with the final constitution of 1996. The expropriation without compensation is provided for in the final constitution. There is a misreading of that constitution by people who say the constitution provides for willing buyer, willing seller. Read Nuka Itobi's book on land matters and you'll find it exhaustively treated where he says that the constitution is no bar to expropriation without compensation. There is the other question that Paula was beginning to deal with that what would have been the way forward if, for example, in 1996, with the final constitution, we passed a land act which expropriated the land of all the whites? 
what would have been the state of affairs, what would have been the measure that you expected to take. Right now there is a debate going on about the Reserve Bank and has anybody done a costing of what it would cost and if we did not pay anything and nationalize it, what would be the consequences given that we are a player in the world economy and not an island unto itself. These are radical questions that we have to address when we map out a way forward. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Paolo Jordan, do you have any additional input? I'm gonna to go to this question. I'm trying to have them all in one go so that we're out of here by nine. Trying to get Zima Lunga, hope you're back on the line now. Tebuho, please come in. Kusta, please come in. Yeah, we can hear you, thank you, welcome. Yeah, uh, thanks, yeah. this comment is uh, directed uh, at Palo, but certainly Mac can also respond. Um, in December 2010, last week of December 2010 or early January 2011, you penned a piece in City Press which argued that or maintained that the ANC out-negotiated and outsmarted the Nets during the negotiations. I happened to write, a, I mean, to do a rejoinder the following week uh, in which I argued that none of the sorts happened. In fact, the Knights had a head start over the ANC and any other negotiation partners at CODESA. And I went on to explain how it all happened. I see that your argument, you still maintain the same position uh, if excerpts of your books that I've come across are anything to go by, in which you are said that Mandela used his isolation to make the first steps towards negotiations. Out hazard a, 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 a warning that that was that doesn't seem to be the case because, in fact, the net started in early eighties to start to understand how best to be able to neutralize on a political front and the commercial side, uh, commercial front, uh, black aspirations. In fact, if you look at the uh, the the the, the the cohort that went to universities in the early 80s who were funded by the likes of Anglo-American, uh, South African breweries, uh, Southern Sun and so forth, uh, Unilever and so forth. It was out of a plan, a deliberate plan by the Nets to start creating a middle class, a black middle class, which they were hoping could be used as a buffer. And alongside that, it is because their policies of trying to... Um, uh, create black entrepreneurs was failing because they excuse my uh, my my inelegant use of the word stooge, but the stooges that they had in the likes of Ifram Shabalala and Maponyas, who they happened to encourage to uh, to have to, to to have monopoly over small businesses within the townships, they realized that it was failing because even people were boycotting the the urban bounty councils uh, 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 elections at the time. So I'm going back to say it is the your, 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 I still believe your position then and your position in this book now is redolent with hubris, and um, really um, it is it is it it is it is it is something that I think it's at the uh, it's, it's def defines or it is positive of the lack of uh, humility within the, the ANC as a ruling party. And hence, even the policies of BEE themselves 
that is why there are accusations that even the current president was identified amongst others as people they could use to advance the net policy insofar as the economic policies were concerned. I'll stop there. Thank you, Temuho. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I can feel Carlos Jordan shaking his head down in Cape Town. I can see Uncle Meg's eyes popping up with interest. Uh, Uncle Meg, do you want to have a quick step at that? Uncle Brap, hello. Yeah. You want me to come in? No, no. Look, I would say, you see, Mm, I forget what the speaker's name was, but he's conflating Nats with whites. You see, the National Party are the Nats. That is Puerta's party, Forster's party, Ferhut's party, the Klerk's party. Not all whites are Nats. Let's start there. Secondly, in terms of a black middle class, if you look at every policy that has been pursued by the pre-1948 governments, those of Hesse, of Smuts, and Puerta, from the time of union, all of them, and then of course, especially by the National Party after 48, the main objective was precisely the destruction of an African property-owning class. That is the meaning of the Native Land Act of 1913. That is the meaning of the 1936 Native Land and Trust Act. With respect to the other black communities, you have your Asiatic Land Tenure Act 1946. You have the Group Areas Act of 1951. All of these targeting property-owning classes amongst the blacks with the objective of destroying them. So I don't know where you get this notion that there was an attempt on the part of white power to create a black middle class. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that's true at all. And if you want to talk about sellouts, this and that and that, then you have to put some facts on the table. You have to put some facts on the table. And you see, if you're going to tell me, for example, that we were outmaneuvered by the National Party or by the DA, well, then called DP, in the negotiations. Look at the outcome of the negotiations. Look what they came to the table with, what we came to the table with. Right? If you can demonstrate to me on the basis of that, that what came out was what they wanted rather than what we wanted, then you have an argument. Beyond that, your assertions are your assertions You're entitled to your opinion. But this is not a question about opinions. We want facts. Thank you, Paolo. I want to move on to these questions. Maybe Uncle Mac is happy not to take this one. I've got a few people I need to move to. Kusta, are you there? Can we take a question from you and Zimalunga? There's a couple other speakers. You'll forgive me if I don't get enough time to run through all of them. I, I wanted to say a lot, but uh, because of the time. Uh, uh, Uncle uh, Mac and uh, Paolo Jordan, in 1994, I believe there were these sunset clauses that were incorporated into the agreement, the Codesa agreement, before the elections in 1994. And one of the clauses was that the 
the workforce or the people that work for the apartheid regime would be in, uh, would be in, included in the new dispensation this dispensation now and that agreement was supposed to take 5 years so why did the anc not uh, abandon that agreement after 5 years that's just the question that i wanted to ask thank you can i give you a quick answer my director general in the department of transport <laughs> left the department six months after we became, I became a minister. Please put the facts and look at all the directors generals appointed during 1994 and 1999 in the first administration and tell me whether your claim stands the test of facts. I don't believe it does. But let's answer your question by saying, can we have the facts on the table all the director generals in every department, who were they by 1996, 1999, and who were the ones that we inherited in 1994? Even the member of the chief of staff of the army was gone. Even the national commissioner of prisons was gone. So where are your facts for your claim? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and, uh, these two gentlemen are quite experienced and uh, taking a straight bet to these uh, questions. And I don't know, you be the judge, uh, whether or not they're answering the questions, whether the questions are unfair or not, please uh, be uh, the judge. I want to see who else we have on the line there. Matlala, please come in if you're there, so we can uh, start uh, winding down. Kaifas, I can still see you there. I don't know, Mzi, I uh, hope not to give up on Mzi. Mzi has input. Thanks, thanks. Um, uh, I'll just touch on a more contemporary issue since uh, Mac touched on it about, you know, the current discourse uh, involving uh, the Reserve Bank, nationalization, so on and so forth. He touched on something, I think it was Pakamhisa who had raised it earlier, on, you know, the failure of the ANC government to decide on what should happen with SOEs, especially given in the current context are problematic. Uh, I would like to push Uncle Matt there a bit to say that maybe the submission is not necessarily factual, considering that, I mean, the first economic policy after 94, the RDP, actually highlighted the need to conduct an assessment of what needs to be done and audit on SOEs, which was followed by a year later. Uh, well, 2000 and accelerated framework of restructuring SOEs. But the position of the ANC government in the earlier years of apartheid was actually adopted from the apartheid government position, uh, deregulation, which was subsequently followed by the Deregulation Act of 89, if I'm not mistaken. So there was some thought given. Whether that thought or the, the ideas they had about SOEs were successful or not, that's another thing. But to completely say that they never actually thought what should happen when they unbundle this SOEs and how to position them to empower uh, historically disadvantaged uh, individuals might not necessarily be factual. Maybe we can consider whether their approach and ideas about how to go about that were successful or not. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Martella, my colleague and political analyst, and I appreciate your input there. Uh, Kaifas, we'll have you on. Um, Zimalunga, you can fire away if you're there. 
Okay, Uncle Mac, uh, Uncle Palo, over to you. Uh, we can take that comment and uh, question from uh, Machala. You haven't rated the book for me where it uh, stands in terms of the quality and the style of the writing. I hope this book, one thing about it, gets distributed widely so that people could read, kids in, in, in the in the school uh, system can read more about it, and historians can critique it, uh, most importantly. I'm no historian, but I'd love for uh, the book uh, to get a good, uh, a thorough uh, critiquing from uh, people who know uh, this uh, history. Thank you so much uh, for being uh, with us uh, tonight, and uh, Uncle Paolo, coming to you, you're gonna answer the questions, inputs from Matala and Raid, uh, the book for me in the context of your own parents' writing. I will remember many people mm -hmm. saw even on TV in Mumbo, Yeminyanya, special, special, special. Mm. Now to <clears throat> to respond to the to the last question, you see, I think uh, there is an assumption, A, that uh, the unbundling of state-owned enterprises is a good thing. Uh, it might be, it might not be. I happen to be one of the people who doesn't believe it's a good thing. However, however, we did inherit a number of state-owned enterprises. I myself in my first ministry was responsible for two of those, uh, telecoms and the South African post office. Uh, in the case of Telcom, one of the first things we confronted was that uh, we inherited what was called the South African Telcom, and then there was the so-called four independent party homelands. And the, uh, the immediate challenge was to integrate those four so-called independent party homelands back into the South African telecommunication system. We did that within two years. The next challenge was the fact that uh, talent density in South Africa was extremely racially defined and also uh, geographically defined and in discriminatory terms. One could say Black South Africa did not have access to, to telephony while white South Africa had access to telephony. We had to bridge that. One of the things we did, we had to do in order to achieve that was to seek a strategic equity partner to build up telecom. Now, you couldn't go to the international community with your state-owned enterprise and say, we, are, we want to unbundle this, uh, but we want you to buy shares in it. We want you to invest in it. You see, that wouldn't have made sense, right? So that was one reality we had to face up to. The second thing, and I think this is where I did make a tactical and perhaps a strategic error, is that I didn't recognize the extent to which the cell phone would replace the landline uh, as the main means of telephony in the future. Because had I figured that out, we would have made... Telcom pursued that path rather than the landline. But even that being as it may, we did put in place policies that encouraged the recently formed uh, cell phone companies, Vodacom and MTN, to make cell phones available 
to ordinary people. That's why you have, for instance, the purchase of uh, airtime. It made economic sense for them because it meant they didn't have to send out bills anymore. And because it's a pay-as-you-go, you pay and you get airtime, but it also made telephony available to black South Africans. And it has changed the complexion of teledensity in the country completely. That was an interesting use of state-owned enterprise in order to make radical changes in the lives of our people. Now, in terms of the book itself and writing in Mumbayaminyanya, my parents, etc., well, uh, I would never stack myself against my dad as a writer, even if I thought I was good. Thank you. Okay, thank you, thank you, Brapalo. Uh, Hope to uh, catch up with you properly sometime in Cape Town, COVID and all, uh, permitting it to be wonderful to see you uh, again. It's been a while. Thanks for uh, uh, joining us. And once again, congratulations uh, on, on this book. And hopefully there's another uh, book uh, to be done, another project. And um, yeah, and we will continue to critique your contemporary contributions uh, to the mess uh, that we, in, uh, as a leader in the ANC, thank you very much. Uh, Uncle Mac, your uh, parting shot, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to everybody who has taken part in tonight's discussion and question. I have found the engagement stimulating. I have learned some things from it. And sometimes I think that uh, I have not given sufficient clear responses but I cannot claim to have all the responses that you want. What I do find interesting is that the current state of our country ought to cause disquiet and is causing disquiet in increasing sections of our population. And that is completely justified. The, but to attribute the current state to the negotiated outcome is what I find problematic. I believe that the democracy that we achieved created a beachhead for us, for the entire democratic forces to band together in order to implement step-by-step -step progress in changing the lives of our people. I do not believe that we could have ever achieved a cataclysmic change overnight. But I think there is enough room to criticize ourselves and learn from the experience of the past 27 years, which I think are rich in experience. We have written this book consciously with the aim that it should be readable to a wider section of our population than the current reading population. We hope that it is readable to anybody who has been or is in grade 11, grade 12. We have avoided cliches and labels in our discussion and tried to keep our discourse as simple as possible. If it can lead to more debate based on information and facts, we would be very happy. And we would really welcome scholars and others to criticize the book, to approach it with a critical mind, because it is only in that way that we can appropriate our past into our present in a meaningful way. So thank you, Sam, for your provocation. 
Uh, I have avoided reacting to your provocations. I will deal with that outside of this session. <laughs> you know, you can try. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Agumen. Marisa, uh, you're parting short there, then I'll close it off quickly. Thank you. <laughs> we don't want to know what's going to happen to you after this. Um, thank you so <laughs> thank you so much, uh, colleagues. Thank you very much uh, to our guest, uh, Mr. Paulo Jordan, uh, Mr. Meg Maharaj. Thank you very much for this body of work. As I said earlier, um, I think this book is quite timely, uh, in particular to help us understand precisely where we come from so that we can debate critically and with facts about where we are, um, where we come from and where we are going. Um, thank you to everybody who is on this space. Um, every Wednesday, Politics Wednesday on Sowetan Live uh, in partnership with The Exchange. Um, thank you very much for joining us. We will see you next week, 7 p.m. sharp. Sam, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Novisa. Look out uh, for the podcast uh, midday tomorrow on the Sowetan uh, Live uh, website and uh, also our, uh, the various uh, timelines. And I'll be writing a bit more about this and uh, the book and so it in Sunday Times, Financial Mail, and let's carry on having conversations about our history. Thank you. See you next week. Good night.